Welcome to What Does This Mean? A discussion of the readings that we read in many churches this coming Sunday, the fourth Sunday of Advent. Our scriptures help us take these last steps toward Christmas, describing pregnancies, holding God's promises, ancient hopes being realized, and dreams describing miracles. We're looking forward to talking with you about them. Welcome to What Does This Mean? I'm Pastor Lois Palmeyer. I'm Pastor Javen Swanson. And I'm Pastor Bradley Schmeling. We are the pastors at Gloria Day Lutheran Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. And for the next few minutes, we're going to discuss the readings that are coming up on Sunday. Many of us struggle when we try to read the Bible, try to understand what it could be saying. And we find it helpful to talk to each other about what we think we might be hearing, and we hope that that might be helpful for you who are listening to, to reflect with us a little bit about things that we'll hear this coming Sunday. For this season of our podcast, we're inviting special guests to help us talk about the readings. Today's special guest is John Stendhal. Welcome, John. We're so glad that you're with us. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, thank you, Lois. Um, uh, my wife, Jane, and I I uh, live in Highland Park here. We've been the members of Gloria Day about 23 years. We transferred over from uh, Central in downtown Minneapolis. Our son, Kevin, is 28. We've been married 47 years this month. Wow. wow. Congratulations. Thanks, yeah. Uh, at Gloria Day, I've been involved and am involved now with the church council. Uh, I'm a chairman of the Shared Ministry Committee where we work with volunteers for the church. Uh, I serve communion. I act as a lector and as assisting minister sometimes. Uh, Career-wise, mostly I'm retired now. I'd been with the same insurance company for about 40 years prior to that. Wonderful. We're so glad that you're here. Thanks for being with us. Thanks again. Pastor Javen, our first reading is from Isaiah chapter 7, verses 10 through 16. The Lord spoke to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol, or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary mortals that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son, and shall name him Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey by the time he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land before whose two kings you are in dread will be deserted. I had a question about that. First off, who's Ahaz? This is a good question, and it gets complicated. <laughs> a little biblical history A little here. biblical history. How far back do we go? So, In the beginning. <laughs> um, so Israel was a country. David was the most famous king of Israel. And not long after David, there was a civil war between the northern part of Israel and the southern part of Israel, broke into two different countries, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. So now Ahaz 
is the king of the southern part, Judah, where Jerusalem is. And a little background about what's going on here is the southern part, Judah, is under threat of an attack from the northern part, Israel, who has made an alliance with um, the Arameans, which is another enemy um, country. So Israel and Aram are in an alliance threatening to attack Judah. Ahaz is wondering what to do now that Israel and Aram are threatening to attack them. And Ahaz's knee-jerk reaction is, we got to defend ourselves. We better make our own alliances. We better, you know, like we have to, we have to fight back and make sure we, by our own power, win this thing. And Isaiah is saying, ask God for a sign. And Ahaz says, nope, not, I don't want anything to do with God. We got this. I won't put God to the test this way. That's not my job to do that. Right. And so Ahaz says, fine, God's going to give you a sign anyway. And the sign is going to be a child named Emmanuel, which means God is with us. As though to say, Isaiah is saying to Ahaz, God will be with you if you rely on God. Don't just go do this on your own. God is with us. And this sense of it's happening right now. See that woman over there? She's already pregnant. That baby's going to come and that baby's going to be a reminder to us before he can grow old enough to eat something as simple as curds and whey. um, He will already be able to know right from wrong. If this little baby that's coming can figure it out, you certainly have time to figure it out, pick the right way. Well, I think this happens often in the Bible, that it's easier for people to talk about God than to talk to God. And I think what Isaiah is pushing Ahaz to is to consider the relationship. You know, the answer is that God is with you, which is a relational answer. It's not a strategic answer. It's not this voice from heaven saying, you got to do this or you got to do that. It's sort of saying our future is in having a relationship with one another, which I think is where this text sort of begins to speak to me. Even as a pastor, I find it easier to talk theologically or to talk about who God is rather than to kind of bring myself into relationship with God and ask myself, well, what is that really going to look like? Not only is it relational, but the relationship here and the person involved is a baby. You know, it's like Isaiah is pointing Ahaz to look at a baby and says, that's going to be your sign. Right. Um, not some big army, not some, you know. It's like the most humble thing he could have picked, the most helpless and humble thing. Right. Which helps explain why we're reading this story on the Sunday before Christmas. It's like we're being directed where to look to for our hope. Why don't we take a break and we'll come back with our next reading.
Our second reading is from Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, right at the beginning, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for the sake of his name, including yourselves who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all God's beloved in Rome who are called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow, that's like the longest sentence I've Seriously. ever seen. I know. I, I'd, uh, I didn't know where I was going to breathe when I was reading it. It seemed really confusing to me. Is this explaining all the great details about Paul and what he's trying to accomplish? Is that sort of or his power? Yeah, I think he's kind of um, – this is the very beginning of the letter. So it's kind of standard in a letter of that day to sort of establish your credentials and to say what kind of authority you have. Why should people listen to what you have to say, and and Paul is saying, you should listen to what I'm about to write to you because I have heard Jesus, I'm an apostle, and he kind of traces that, kind of the history of belief for for people. Um, but interesting, what I noted when I kind of read this again is that even though he kind of claims this special place as an apostle, he ends it by saying, you yourselves are called to belong to Christ. So he include he's already including all of the listeners into that special knowledge, the special relationship that he has. So the literary convention of the day was if you're writing a letter to someone, you act, so we would say dear so and so, comma, and then we would start our letter. And, those, and we would recognize that form immediately right. as a letter. And it would yeah. end with, sincerely, comma, your name. Yeah. Um, and in this time, they would start by saying who, who the writer is. So it starts with Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Um, and then the next piece of the form would be to say to whom you're writing. To, and so here the two actually comes in verse 7, to all God's beloved in Rome who are called to be saints. And then there's this nice little grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And now the letter begins. Yeah. But what Paul has done here is this huge literary flourish. Um, so he doesn't just say Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. He says this whole six verses of run on sentence, a servant of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle set apart. Da, 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 da. But in doing so, he establishes, like you said, pastor Bradley, kind of his credentials for being the writer, why people should listen to him. And he even kind of previews the entire story he or the, his message that is going to come across in the next however many chapters of this letter. He sounds kind of like he's bragging here at the beginning, but he turns it to say uh, about the gospel. So he, he says, I've been called by the gospel. And let me tell you how 
impressive and important the gospel is. And the the rest of the brag really is about Jesus here. You know, the, the next five verses are not him saying, and I'm so great that I can tell you all this, but God's love is so great that I can tell you about this. I can tell you about the amazing things that Jesus was doing in his life because he did it to me and he's doing it to you. And that's what this letter is about, to help you understand God is doing remarkable, amazing things in our world, in our lives, and we get to be witnesses to that. I like that he always greets these communities with words like grace and peace. You know, we recognize these words in the Lutheran Church. We hear them at the beginning of every liturgy, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That's one of the greetings that comes from Paul. And I just think, what if we entered every situation or every encounter with grace and peace being our first sentiments, our first words or the way that we're going to frame the next interaction that we have with people, you know, that we are graceful and peaceful and just grounded in that. My pastor growing up started every sermon with this uh, second half of verse seven, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And each of you, Pastor Bradley, Pastor Lois, have your own version of this that you begin most of your sermons with. Mm -hmm. I think, Pastor Bradley, you say something like, dear friends in Christ Jesus. Mm -hmm. And Lois, you say something like... Friends in Christ, God's grace and peace be with you. Right. Mm -hmm. I love that idea that there's kind of a... They're your own unique versions of that, but they hearken to this, this form of writing that we are now addressing a community, and I want to start by grounding ourselves grounding all of us in grace and peace. Mm -hmm. Romans is really Paul's podcast to the Roman (laughs) people. You know, it's like, here, I want to communicate with you. I want to talk to you about what's going on in your world. And I want to bring the light of Jesus Christ. I want to bring the scripture to you and have you... Uh, help you uh, make sense of it all in the complicated world that you're living in right now. Why is this read during Advent? I think it's because you have this introduction about the son who was descended from David according to the flesh. And so you have this little mini story of Jesus that begins really in birth that God becomes flesh and therefore with us and among us, and we're about to celebrate that? I think that's a great explanation and a wonderful um, bridge to our next reading. Why don't we take a break here and come back and read all about that? We're back. Our reading for this coming Sunday is Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. 
her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son, and he named him Jesus. Well, this text makes a whole lot more sense than the other two that I read here. (laughs) It's a little more familiar to us. I think people often have that reaction in church. I would expect so, yes. I had often wondered, uh, you know, what did Joseph think about that? He's got this woman that he's engaged to or going to be married to or is befriending and all that. And uh, she's pregnant. Mm-hmm. And it's like, wow. And I don't know how common that was back in the day, but then, you know, no, I haven't had sexual relations with anybody. It's like, it's kind of hard to fathom that. And this helps to really explain that, that uh, the Lord appeared to Joseph in, uh, in the dream. Yeah. So we don't know exactly what the standards of marriage and engagement were in that culture. It's different than ours um, and certainly different than what we, I think, the the morals that we presume were true, which is, you know, no one could um, have sex before they were married. It's not really clear. It says that they um, did not live together um, and that they had no marital relations with her um, until after, uh, until she became, uh, until she had born a son. So there, there's the sense of, oh, it means that no, you know, you weren't allowed to have sex before you were married, but it's not really positive that that was the the culture of the time. There was kind of different understandings of engagement. And you know, we, we know looking at scripture, there's all kinds of varieties of marriage and sexual laws that were about whether people could be virgins or not, or how, how you would prove that and what it meant for a, a marriage. The focus was always, whose child is this? And one of the reasons for all the sexual purity laws in scripture is because there was no DNA testing. There was no way of knowing for sure whose child would this be unless you just knew for sure there's no sex outside of that marriage. It has to be with that only that one individual. What what I like about this story is how it takes that verse that we read earlier from Isaiah and twists it a little bit. In in Isaiah, when we heard it, it didn't say it was a virgin. It said the young woman is with child and she will bear a child. So she's already pregnant at the time. But the the word for young woman can also be translated as we might say maiden in an, another another time in our culture, which sometimes means virgin. And Matthew thought it did. You know, he was he was reading it into it and saying, look, it's just like that scripture passage where actually in the scripture passage, she already was pregnant. It's not like she's going to conceive. So he twisted it a little bit, which I think is always fun for us to realize that even even the gospel writers may have twisted meanings to make it sound like what he, what they were trying to say. I do think you get a little sense of who Joseph is in this text, being a righteous man Mm -hmm. and unwilling to expose her to public 
disgrace. I think there's a there's a sweetness in that that even though this situation is not turning out like he expected, um, there's a depth of caring he has for her, and it's unwilling to. Uh, because the culture, regardless of what they thought about how this worked, the culture was vicious with women who didn't act according to the rules. There's something about trust in this passage that everything else would have told him be angry, to run away from it, um, to assume that Mary has done something wrong and to cast her out. But he trusts what God tells him about what's going on which maybe contrasts with Ahaz in that first reading where Ahaz is bound and determined to follow his own reasoning and his own logic and will have nothing of what the prophet tells him God is promising to do. I love that image, too, of uh, Joseph being a righteous man. The The sense of righteousness in Scripture is often about doing the right thing for the relationship's sake. And there is an Old Testament story of uh, pregnancy. It's a long story, but uh, a woman needs to get pregnant, she feels like, because her husband died before he was able to, um, they were able to conceive. So she seduces her father-in-law so that the child to be born would be um, of the right line. And the the phrase is, she did what was righteous in that relationship. And to use that line for Joseph, many people would say the righteous thing is to divorce her now, Mary. Uh, she's pregnant, not your baby. Get out of that. That's not. And he twists the word around to say what would be righteous would be to make sure she's not disgraced. I'm going to protect her and and love her through this somehow, and I will claim that child as my own, which is a whole twist on the word righteousness. Right. Well, it, it makes it include mercy. Part of being a righteous person isn't following the rules, but it's allowing mercy and compassion to be your guide or to be in conversation with the rules. And it can be the opposite of being rigid. In the first uh, reading that we did, it talked about Emmanuel with an I. His name will be Emmanuel. And then in the second reading, it talked about Emmanuel, that his name will be Emmanuel. And then in the third, and which is common now, is his name will be Jesus. And do those all mean the same thing? Or was it sort of subject to interpretation at the time? Or why is that? Well, Emmanuel literally in Hebrew is God with us. It's how you would say that in Hebrew. And sometimes in Hebrew, the vowel sounds are a little different or are always, aren't always consistent because Hebrew just uses the consonants. I think uh, the Greek spelling is with the E. It's the same word um, of a, a Hebrew text. So that word is the same. Again, there are no vowels in Hebrew. Is it just like a transliteration issue where it's like when you convert it from one language to another, you have to choose spellings and vowel oh. sounds and everything? And so I think they're the same thing. It just depends on which, whether you're translating from Hebrew or Greek. And Right. The legacy is every time you write, O come, O come, Emmanuel, you got to look up to see which one to use. Right. I always get confused. Is it the I or the, the E? e? There's all kinds of hints in this text of a description of the identity of Jesus. So he's son of David. He's also son of Joseph, in some ways, a righteous one. He's uh, 
uh, you know, descended through God's God's power, and the Holy Spirit is involved somehow in His conception. He is the one who saves people from their sins. It says there this corporate sense of all of our sins, the whole earth's sins, and He is a sign to us of God is with us. All these things, just in a few verses there. It's probably also worth noting that. There are two very different Christmas stories that are in Scripture. Matthew and Luke who are the only two that tell birth stories of Jesus. Mark and John don't even mention it, really. Um, they're told very differently, and that's okay um, because their point of telling the story is to get to these other points that we're talking about is to try to talk about who Jesus is, what his identity is. Sometimes people try to take both of these stories very literally and then try to harmonize them with one another. And that it kind of doesn't work because Luke and Matthew both had different points they were trying to make. Speaking of that uh, Luke version of the Christmas story, our next podcast will be a special Christmas podcast. It's our Christmas, our Yay! first ever Christmas, Christmas special. <laughs> right. And we need a special song or we'll something. We'll have special music and we will talk about the Luke story that we're so familiar with, our normal Christmas story. So we're looking forward to having you back for that. Meanwhile, we're so glad that you were with us today. We are very interested in your questions and your thoughts about what this all means. Drop us a note at pastors at gloriadaystpaul.org. Thank you so much, John, to John Stendel for being with us uh, today to talk about these readings. We're so glad for your perspective. Thank you also to Paul Friesen Carper for providing the music for us and to Marshall Saunders of Minnesota Podcasting for producing these podcasts for us. We hope you'll join us for worship every Sunday at either 8.15 or 10.45 a.m. with Sunday School for All Ages at 9.30 a.m. Thank you so much for being with us today. Know that wherever you are on your journey, God is with you, God loves you, and God will provide all that you need. This has been What Does This Mean? A podcast created by Gloria Day Lutheran Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. You can find Gloria Day online at www.gloriadaystpaul.org. This podcast has been produced by Minnesota Podcasting, and they can be found online at www.mnpodcasting.com.